0: Turn together once again to the book of James chapter 1. James chapter 1, this is the word of God. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind, and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, But the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of Light's With whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. Slow to speak. Slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, He, being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God shall stand forever. I call your attention now to the text for the sermon tonight, which is verses 16, 17, and 18 of that passage. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, the text we consider this evening makes essentially the same point as the text that we considered last week. The text we considered last week. Verses 13, 14, and 15 made this point from a negative point of view. God is not tempted with evil, so when you are tempted, you must not blame God for the sin that arose first from within your own flesh. The text tonight makes this point from a positive point of view, however. So much is God not a tempter who leads us into evil, that he is actually the giver of every good and every perfect gift. So much is God not given to darkness that he is actually the father of lights and the fountain of all good. And out of God's goodness, God has done this wonder. He has brought us forth to new life so that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The bottom line is this. Only a fool points the finger at God. Wisdom aims to vindicate God from all slander. Wisdom knows that God is good and trusts in God as the Father who has begotten us of His own will. What James is impressing on us in this text then really colors the rest of his epistle. We know James is an epistle full of practical applications. It is an epistle that calls us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Well, it is this conviction that will make us doers of the word and not hearers only when we are firmly rooted in the essential goodness of God. So that we say the God who calls me to put a bridle on my tongue Is the God who is good to me and the giver of my life. And the God who calls me to visit the fatherless and widow. And the God who calls me to remain unspotted from this world is the God who is holy light and who has become my Father in Jesus Christ. I will hear him, and I will not only hear him, but I will live by every word that comes out of his mouth because I know him and I know that he is good. It is this conviction also in the essential goodness of God that will help us to press on when the Christian life is difficult. That's part of the context that James is addressing here. These are believers in the early New Testament church who have been having their faith put under trial. The Christian life is hard. There are many temptations that we face, temptations that come to us from the outside, and then there's the temptation from the inside regarding how we respond to it. But when I know that the God who called me is good, that his will toward me is the will of a father to his son or to to his daughter, then I can keep my head lifted up, then I can press on, then I can persevere, because I know there will be a crown of life waiting for me at the end of that road. So I call your attention to the text this evening, and the theme is God begetting us of his own will. First, we will identify this good and perfect gift that James is speaking of, which is the gift of salvation, God begetting us of his own will. And then in the second place, we'll see how once God gives that gift to us, he does not take it away, but it is a constant stream of light to us. And then we'll conclude once again where we began by seeing how this goodness of God to us makes him irreproachable unblamable he is good god begetting us of his own will first the good and perfect gift second the constant stream of light and then finally the irreproachable god the good and perfect gift is that god begets us to be a kind of first fruits of his creatures verse 18 of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. When a baby girl is held in her mother's arms for the first time, we all recognize intuitively that this is a gift. There was nothing. Then there was a life, a life that came to be. And that life came to be through powers that were working outside of that little girl's consciousness and control. She simply came into a world that was full of light and full of sounds and full of colors, and she opened her eyes. She was then received in the embrace of her mother, where she was warmed and she was fed and she began to grow and she began to develop into a little girl and then into an adult. Well, James wants that picture of birth and begetting in our minds when he speaks of God begetting us. There was nothing. There was nothing in you and nothing in me except spiritual darkness and blindness of mind, death and depravity. Then there was life. Through powers working outside of our consciousness and outside of our control, we emerged into the kingdom of heaven like newborn babes. We had our eyes opened, eyes that before were blind and closed. They were opened to receive his light. We had ears that before were deaf, opened to hear his voice. We were received into his bosom. We were identified by him as sons and daughters. We began to be nourished by him, fed with spiritual meat and drink. God, beget us, beget us. This is what we call, in theological language, the work of regeneration. Regeneration. Regeneration begins with a direct act of God, a direct act of God that is not unlike physical conception. It's like physical conception in the sense that it is a mysterious work The brightest medical professionals in the world have all kinds of knowledge about what goes on in the womb. All kinds of knowledge about how a child develops and grows and eventually is born and lives. But even the brightest medical professionals in the world have no idea how life begins. And they never will. They never will. We shouldn't expect either to understand the mystery of the Spirit's quiet work as he brings new life where there was only death and where there was only depravity. God begets us to new life. That's regeneration, a direct act of God that takes place deep within us, deep within our heart. And it's regeneration. We were alive once, physically conceived and brought into the world out of our mother's womb. But now we are brought to life once again. Because according to our natural state, we were living in death. We were totally depraved. But God regenerates us. He enlivens that which was dead. He quickens that which was dead. And then that life that he begets or brings forth begins to grow and it begins to develop. Think about how it works Again, in physical conception, when a child is first conceived, there is no immediate change in his mother's appearance. There is no feeling or even consciousness that there is a child even there. But then that child begins to grow. What first appears to be just a little bean sprouts limbs and eyes and facial features, and it grows in size, and with the growth of that child swells the mother's belly until finally she gives birth to a baby, fully developed. And then she takes that child into her arms and nourishes him, and he continues to grow and continues to develop into childhood and young adulthood, and finally becomes an adult. Well, regeneration is like that. Regeneration is one of those Tricky words that can mean different things depending on the context. It it, it can refer to that first mysterious act of spiritual conception that the spirit does in the innermost recesses of a man's heart. We call that regeneration in the narrow sense. It's like the planting of a seed. There's no consciousness that the spirit is doing anything. He just works. He just acts. But regeneration can also refer to what happens after that. It can refer to the birth itself. It can refer to the awakening, the illumining of the mind, so that a person becomes conscious of the kingdom of heaven and begins to grow and develop and comes to life and grows in maturity. We call that regeneration in the broader sense. But here I think James wants us to see the whole process from the beginning when God plants that seed all the way through. Look at who he's speaking to. According to verse 16, he's speaking to his brothers. Do not err, my beloved brethren. So he's speaking to those who have been born again, and he's calling them brothers, brothers and sisters. And he's addressing them as they're going through trials and temptations, and they're tempted then to blame God. That's why he said, let no man say when he is tempted that I'm tempted of God. That's what they're tempted to do. But he wants to redirect their attention and say, look at what a tremendous gift of life that God has given to you. My brothers, my sisters, those of you who are sitting in the church, who believe in Jesus Christ, this is what's true of you. Of his own will, he begat you. He brought you to life. That you should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What does that part of it mean? First fruits of his creatures. James uses that expression deliberately, and it helps us further to see the big picture here in God's redemptive work. First fruits was an aspect of the ceremonial life of the children of Israel in the Old Testament. Israel was to bring the first fruits. To the temple as an offering at the beginning of harvest. What the offering of the first fruits signified is that all of the harvest that they are about to gather in really belongs to God. The field that they labor in, where their crops grow, is God's field. The harvest that they gather in is God's harvest, and they indicate that this harvest belongs to God by bringing the first fruits to the temple. But there's more to it than that fruits also signified is that there is more to come. If there, if there are first fruits, well then there's going to be second fruits and there's going to be third fruits and there's going to be fourth fruits and there's going to be all kinds of fruits more until the whole harvest is gathered in. And once the whole harvest is gathered in, what happens? Well everybody gathers together and they have a festival. They have a feast. There's a celebration. There's joy. There's thanksgiving to God. Why does James say that we will be a kind of first fruits of the new creation. Well, James is reminding us, I believe, first of all, of the greatness of the harvest of souls that God is gathering into his church. God is the father of lights, James says. But he's not the father of one light. He's not the father of two lights. He's the father of many lights. He's the father who begets as many lights as there are stars in heaven, as he said to Abraham, in the book of Genesis, he's a God who begets as many lights as there is grain in a field. From our perspective and time and history, we only ever see the first fruit. Remember who James is speaking to here. He's speaking to the early New Testament church. This is like a decade or two after Jesus was crucified and rose again. This is the beginning of the church. And the congregations that they were seeing was the first fruits, the first in gathering after the spirit was poured out. And James is saying, all right. You are the beginning of the New Testament church and your faith is being put under trial. You're being pressed, you're being persecuted and you're tempted to blame God and to say, well, this isn't worth it. But remember that there's a bigger picture here. There's a bigger picture here. You're just the first fruits and the pain and the suffering and the trouble that you're going through, the persecution that you are suffering, the trying of your faith. These are part of the labor pains as God is gathering a whole church. It's it's bigger than just you and your experience, in other words. And that should be an encouragement. As we go through trials and as we go through through Pressures in life. It's not just about me. It's not just about my suffering. I'm one piece in this whole harvest that God is gathering, and it's all part of that big picture. But by bringing up the first fruits, and specifically the first fruits of the new creation, James is also reminding us that there is a goal in all of this. What is the ultimate goal in God's redemptive work? Well, today we live in the valley. Today we are hard pressed by trials and temptations on every side. But God has begotten us again to be the first fruits of a new creation that he is busily preparing. So when light breaks into your soul and that seed is planted and you are begotten again to new life, that is the beginning of eternal life that is breaking forth into you. There's more to come more to come for us as individuals. We only have the seed. But that seed is going to bring forth flowers and forests and a great harvest and a new heavens and a new earth. The first fruits of a new creation. You see, God is a generous giver That's his point. He's a generous giver. He gives good gifts. He gives perfect gifts. That is, complete gifts. Gifts that do not lack or miss anything. The gifts that God gives are gifts that enliven. They are gifts that nourish. They are gifts that bring light where there is only darkness. They are gifts that bring hope where there is only hopelessness. He is the Father of lights who gives every good and every perfect gift, especially this gift, that we are begotten again to be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And he gives this gift to us freely. He begets us of his own will by the word of truth. How he begets us is with the word of truth. If you think about that for a minute, you'll you'll realize that that's true. He begets us with the word of truth. What is it that awakens in your soul a spiritual hunger and thirst for the things of the kingdom of God? What is it that moves you deeply with the beauty of God's grace and inspires you To live, not for yourself, but to live for Him and for the cause of His kingdom? What is it that makes your heart burn within you with a longing to see the face of your Savior and to see the kingdom coming in all of its glory? What is it that has that effect on you? Is it riches in this life? Is it your job? Is it anything in your environment? Is it not the word of truth? That's what it was for those two travelers to Emmaus. Remember that story? Two travelers to Emmaus. They had just witnessed the crucifixion and death of Jesus. And they were walking back home all discouraged and troubled. And then a stranger starts walking with them. And he starts to open up the Bible to them and explain to them that this is what was supposed to happen to the Messiah. He was supposed to suffer. He was supposed to die. The word of God foretold it. And then at the very end, that stranger takes off his disguise, as it were, and reveals who was talking to them all along. It was Jesus. But then what do they say to themselves before running back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples what their experience was? This is what they say, according to Luke 24, verse 32. Did not our heart burn within us? Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us, by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures? It was his word. It was the word of truth that he spoke as he opened to them the scriptures that enlivened them, quickened in them a hunger and a thirst for the kingdom of heaven. The word of truth is a power, you see. It's a power that gives knowledge to the ignorant, knowledge of the goodness and mercy of the living God. It's a power that sets before us Jesus Christ in his life, and his suffering, and his victory over death. The word of truth is light, light that breaks into our darkness. The word of truth is truth. Oh, we live in a world full of lies, don't we? We live in a world full of broken promises, a world of untruth, a world of deception, a world where things aren't the way they seem to be. The word of God is truth. Truth. And as truth, it has the power to set us free. To awaken our souls to the kingdom of God. It's by that word of truth that God begets us again. Even even in that first act of the spirit, that narrow aspect of regeneration. When you and I were nothing more than a spiritual embryo, Created by a direct act of God, what was that act of God that brought you into being spiritually and awakened you to the knowledge of the kingdom of heaven? What was it? God spoke. He spoke directly from His own mouth. He spoke into the darkness of your soul, just like in the beginning, He spoke into the nothingness. And He said, Let there be light, and there was light. So He spoke. Into the darkness of your soul. And he said let there be life. And out of that darkness there was life. And the things that were not. Became to be so. By his word of truth. He begets us mysteriously. Invisibly. And that should tell us. Something about the significance of this book beloved. This book. Is the product of the same mouth that spoke in the beginning and said, let there be light. This book is the product of the same mouth, the same mind, the same heart, that spoke into your soul and beget you. This book is more than some black ink on white pages between two covers. It is a spiritual incubator. It is a lifeline, an umbilical cord that ties you back to the source of goodness and life that is your God. Tells us something about the place that that word ought to have in our lives, in our everyday life. He begets us by his word of truth. But maybe even more important than that expression James uses is the other expression he uses. He begets us not only by his word of truth, but he begets us of his own will. That means, on the one hand, that it is God who decides God who decides who has gotten to new life and who will remain in death. It is God who decides where the word will be preached by the missionaries he sends through the church. And it is God who decides where the word will not be preached so that many are left in ignorance. Like when Paul wanted to go into Asia and God said, no, you're not going to go that way. You're going to go this way. You're going to go into Macedonia. God decides God decides which souls will hear that word of life, not just externally, but in their souls, so that they are begotten again to new life and gathered in as part of His harvest. And God also decides which souls will remain spiritually deaf and blind to the kingdom of heaven, so that they harden their hearts and turn against Him. God decides. God is sovereign. The gift of salvation does not arise from below out of the will of man. It comes down from above, from the Father of lights, just like every other good and perfect gift. The will of God is absolutely sovereign. James brings this up to us, not just to teach us about the sovereignty of God, but he brings this up to impress upon us the freedom with which God now has given this gift to us. His point is this. There was nothing constraining God that made it so that he had to give this gift to you. There was nothing that you or anyone else did that forced his hand so that he had to be nice to you and me. In fact, the opposite is the case, isn't it? All you and I have ever conceived and brought forth out of our own will is sin and death and lust. Nevertheless, of his own free will, God decided to beget you. By his word of truth, to be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. People of God imagine all the things that God can do if he wants to. Who is God? He's a creator, he's a king. He's the one person about whom it can be said. He is absolutely autonomous, absolutely sovereign, absolutely free. He can do whatever he wants. There are no constraints on him. Time itself does not bind him. He is absolutely free. And in that freedom, what did he choose to do? What did he want to do? What did he desire to do? Desired to beget you, to beget you as a kind of first fruits of his creatures, to give you new life, to raise you out of death and depravity, and to give you hope that you will belong to that new heavens and that new earth and you will live there. That's what he wanted to do. Isn't he good? Is he not worthy of our trust and our worship? He's not going to change his mind in this matter. He's not going to take the gift away once it's been given. James proves this. The fact that this gift is constant. He proves it by calling our attention to the steady and unchanging character of God himself. In verse 17, he uses the picture of light. To make his point, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Light comes from above, doesn't it? On a sunny day when there are big cumulonimbus clouds with holes in them, you can see the light streaming through those holes, and when you see that, it always makes you think of heaven, doesn't it? It always makes you think of God and the angels. And that light that comes down from the sun is the source of all warmth, all life on earth. This is one of the first things that children learn in biology class when they're learning about ecosystems and how it all works. All life begins with the sun, the energy, the light, the warmth that comes from the sun. Take the sun with its light and its warmth away and what is the earth? It's just a old rock floating around in space. Well, the Bible often points to the heavenly bodies as signs of those things that do not change. Tonight, go outside when it's dark and look up at the moon if there's no clouds in the sky. And then think to yourself this. That same moon that you are looking at has been looked at by every other person who has ever lived long enough to be able to look up at the sky and take note of the things that are up there. If Noah looked out of that little window that he built in the ark at night and there weren't any clouds in the sky anymore, he would have seen the same moon that you will see tonight if you look up in the sky. If David sat by the fire with his men when he was run, running away from Saul in the wilderness and he looked up at the sky. He would have seen the same moon that you will look at when you look up at the sky tonight. The moon is always there and it's always giving its light. The sun is always there and it's always giving warmth to the earth. And yet, if you look closely at the sun and if you look closely at the moon and you observe them for some time, you will notice that even the sun and the moon are subject to variations. When a lunar eclipse takes place, a shadow, the shadow of the earth, is cast over the moon and turns the moon, which was light, into darkness. When a cloud passes over the sun, the the warmth that you once felt on your skin is suddenly gone and you get chills in those creaturely vessels of light that are pictures in the Bible of that which is always there, of that which is constant, even in those creaturely vessels of light, There is variableness. There is shadow of turning. And that's characteristic not only of the sun and the moon, which are pretty well fixed objects, but it's true of everything in the creation. The creation, by virtue of what it is, changes. What once was given can be taken away. What once was life-giving sunshine can become famine and drought. But now James wants us to think of the light that stands behind You see, God is among lights. God is the Father of lights. God is the one who created the sun. God is the one who set the stars in their courses, and calls them all by their names. God is the one who created the moon. God is light itself, and in Him is no darkness at all. John says in First John one verse five. And the light that is God, is not a light that is bound to or dependent upon this creation. It is a light that comes out of Himself. It is His moral and ethical perfection that reveals that He is the only good God and the fountain of all goodness. Because that light comes out of His own being, it's a constant stream. The sun may be eclipsed and the moon may turn to the stars may fall from heaven, and they will one day, But in God, and in the light that is in God, there is no variableness, there is no shadow of turning. There is no evil, evil, that has the power to obscure and hide the brightness of God's light, or to turn it into darkness. Instead, the light of God is the power that overcomes the darkness and banishes it away. And God has always been that way. God has always dwelt in the light that no man can approach unto. God has always been the Father, basking in the light of the Son and of the Spirit. God has always been the Son, gazing with joy upon the light of the Father and the Spirit. He has always been the Spirit, illuminating the light within the Father and the Son. God is light, a constant, eternal stream of goodness and perfection. And the gift of salvation... Is as constant and as steady as the light that is always emanating out of God's being. James uses the language of fatherhood and begetting. And he uses that language deliberately. Who is God? He not only is light, but he is the father of all light. And that should make us ask the question, well, what is it that fathers do? What is it that makes a father a father? Well, a father begets. A father begets children. But what does this father beget? The father of lights. Right away we think, well, he's the creator of the sun. He's the creator of the stars. He's the creator of the moon. He, He brought forth all of those lights. But no, that's not what James is talking about. What is the light that this father begets? He begets you. He begets you who sometimes were darkness. But now you are children of light. He calls you into the kingdom of His dear Son and makes you see His marvelous light. That's the regeneration we were talking about before. But now, here's James's point here in the second point. Do you think that once God has begotten you as children of light, that that light will go out? Will God, who is a constant stream of light Himself, ever let the light that He has shined into you be eclipsed? be obscured by shadow of turning? And the answer is absolutely not. There is no variableness or shadow of turning in God, and there is therefore no variableness or shadow of turning in the works of God. The light that He brings forth in us is as constant and as unchanging as He Himself is. So You see how wrong Arminian theology is when it denies the perseverance of the saints. Well, sure, they say, you can be begotten. You can be begotten by the Father of lights if you just let that light shine into your hearts. Don't resist that light. That light wants to shine into your hearts. Don't resist it. If you let that light shine into your hearts, you can be begotten again. But make sure, make sure that you don't use the same will by which you did not resist that light from coming in don't use that same will to turn off the light switch because if you are the gatekeeper who lets the light in then you also have the power to drive the light out and that's why in arminian theology you can never know you can never know for sure Your begetting again, your regeneration, your salvation depends not on the constant and unchanging will of God. It depends on your fickle and always changing human will. So you can never know. You can never know whether or not you will be lost in darkness in the end. Well, I'm in the light today. But my place in the light depends upon my will that chose it. Not so. Does not like that. He's not a God who gives and then expects restitution or even takes away what he has given. He's not a God who changes his mind. You can rely upon it. You can rely upon it, beloved, that the light that is in you by which God has begotten you again by his word of truth, of his own will, that light will remain in you. It will remain in you you enter into heaven itself and then that light will only intensify there will be no need for the sun anymore because the lamb is the light in the world that is coming and it's there in the lamb that we find the ultimate proof of the constancy of the stream of god's light isn't it who is jesus christ what did he say of himself he said i'm the light I'm the light of the world. I am light. Come into the darkness, even though the darkness did not comprehend him when he came. He is the light as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, full of truth, revealing everything that is in the Father and in Jesus Christ, who came into this world as light into the darkness. There was no variableness. There was no shadow of turning. He did not shy away from his task, did he? When all the things that he must suffer, all the things that he must do, all the things that he must accomplish, raised up before him like a great terrible wall, a great mountain of darkness. He did not turn away. He did not flee from it. He ran to it. He ran to it as light to banish away the darkness and banish it away he did. He entered into the darkness on the cross, didn't he? In that darkness, he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But he did that, beloved, that you might never be forsaken of him. He takes the light that is in him, the light whereby he has overcome the world, and he puts it in you. You think that that light is going to go out? It's a light the gift of love so deep that it comes right out of the depth of God's own being and did not even turn away from hell itself. Now James's point in all of this is to defend God. To defend God from reproach and slander. Now we would expect reproach and slander to come from the wicked world, wouldn't we? We would expect reproach and slander to come from the devil. That's who the devil is. That's what the word devil means. Slanderer. And that's the devil's mission. Always to make God look like the bad guy. Yea, hath God said that you can't have all that fun eating that fruit of that tree? Yea, hath God said? The devil does everything he can to deceive others, to get them to slander God along with him. And he's extremely successful because he has in the heart of every human being an ally in their totally depraved old of sin. But you would expect slander and reproach to come from the wicked world, wouldn't you? You would expect it to come from the devil. But James doesn't really have his eye on the devil In the wicked world. When he seeks to defend God from reproach. He has his eye on you. He has his eye on me. He has his eye on every Christian in the church. Who goes through trials and temptations. He has his eye on believers. Who discover that the Christian life isn't easy it involves the bearing of a cross and the temptation they wrestle with is the temptation to blame God for their suffering or or when they fall into bitterness or they fall into self-indulgence because of the pressures of life their temptation is to say well it's God's fault God tempted me God put his bait on the lure and dangled it in front of me and that's why I did this or that if God's way for me wasn't so difficult I wouldn't have fallen into these sins and that's slander Charging God with evil that God is not guilty of. We already saw last week how James seeks to vindicate God from this accusation. He says, Let no man say, when he is tempted, I'm tempted with God, or tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. In other words, when you are tempted, when you temptation, that's not because God tempted you, it's because your own lust conceived and brought forth sin, and the sin that you committed of your own will brought forth death but now here james is saying this it's not just what god didn't do It's not just that god didn't lead you into temptation you have to look at everything that god has done and continues to do for you my brothers of his own free will Would you accuse your own mother of trying to destroy you when all she has given to you is life? Would you accuse your father of trying to trip you up and destroy you when every day he lays his life down for you? In general, no. Though earthly fathers do fail and earthly mothers do forsake. But God is the Father of lights. He's not our earthly father. He's not our earthly mother. A mother may forget her sucking child, but I will never forget you, God says. He is the Father of lights in whom is no variableness or shadow of turning. Open your eyes, James is saying. See the goodness of God. See the goodness that He is always giving to you freely. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Do not follow the devil off the path into slander and reproach of the god who has only ever done good to you he's good irreproachably blamelessly he's good and only good and good to you if we see this beloved then what will be true of us is this We will sooner shut our mouths than ever say one thing against God or His way for us. That's where James goes in the next verse. Wherefore, in other words, in light of everything that I just said to you, wherefore, my beloved brethren, whatever man be swift to hear, Slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Let my tongue fall out. Let my lips be sewed shut. Before I would ever open my mouth or use my tongue to reproach and slander God. The way the devil does every day, and the way the wicked world around me does every day, and then we see the truth of God's goodness and his goodness to us. We will not only be hearers of his word but we will be doers of his word. we will be hearers. And doers of his word. Though it cost us shame. Though it cost us reproach. Though it means we lay down our life. If we understand the goodness of God. And our hearers and doers of the word. We will be alive. To his goodness in everything that we see in life. And dead to the ugliness and evil of this world. Beloved people of God, brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has begotten you of his own will, by the word of truth, that you should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He is the father of lights, and the light that he has brought forth is you. It's in you. It's the new man in you. It's Jesus Christ in you, by his spirit. He's good. He's good to you. Do you believe it? Then hear Him. In hearing Him, live for Him. Live for His glory. Enjoy Him. Delight in Him. He's your God. He's your Father. He's everything. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, Thou art the Father of lights, O no, Father, if Thy Word did not say it, we would hardly dare confess it. That Thou has brought us forth as light, light in the darkness. Begotten us as a kind of first fruits of a new creation. That we should show forth Thy praises and live for Thy glory. O oh, Father, let our tongues fall out. Let our lips be sealed shut before we would ever open them or use them to reproach and slander thee, thy most holy and good name. And let us, O Father, hear thy word. Hear it in all of its glory, even when that word exposes us and calls our attention to our weakness and our failures. Let us hear it, and hearing it, let us be doers of thy word. Cause thy spirit to work in us so that we live as children of light in the darkness. Forgive our sins. Wash us clean in the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.